G'day, I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is Devotions in the Deep End. Grab a coffee and open your Bible to Luke chapter 10. We'll get started in just a few moments. We have a well-known story to explore in the next two episodes, and we'll set the scene by reading from verses 25 to 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I have some mixed emotions as I read these verses. You have what is described as an expert in the law here, and that is high praise indeed. The law that is being referred to is, of course, the contents of the Torah, the Mosaic law. And by the first century, it had become a rather complex thing. It mattered greatly to the Jews because it contained the standard that God wanted his chosen people to live up to. And a council of 70 very educated men called the Sanhedrin labored over it on a regular basis to determine how the people could best keep to that standard. Now, I know a few lawyers, and none of them have the capacity to be the experts on the law per se. They can have expertise in segments of it, for example, family law or criminal law or workers' compensation, but they will never master it all. In fields outside their wheelhouse, they simply know where to find the right information and point people in the right general direction. They'll usually refer others to people who know that segment better than they do. So, being regarded as an expert in a document about the standards of God for a whole nation is no mean feat. Something about this man indicates his claim to expertise is not all that unfounded. When he interacts with Jesus about the law, he shows something special. He asks a good question about how to inherit eternal life. In Jewish thought, inheriting the kingdom of God and receiving eternal life are one and the same. So given what Jesus taught about, this expert was coming to the right source. And by the way, that's a good question for everybody to ask. If death is inevitable, then what happens after is a pretty important question to interact with. If you are not a Christian yet, then let me point out that Jesus is most certainly the right and only person to be asking about such matters. In response, we see that Jesus asks a unique question to the expert. What does the law say and how do you read it? This is one of the many times Jesus answered a question with a question. It's a great rhetorical device because it invites conversation. A fun fact, this approach is also known as a Socratic answer. Four centuries earlier, Socrates would answer questions with questions in order to help the inquirer find their own answers. And even today, this is considered an effective approach in helping other people work through their issues and their questions. The conversation goes on to reveal that this expert has earned his stripes. He has admirably memorized entire books of the Old Testament. 
He has deliberated over every command, every ritual, and every prohibition. But he has also rightly captured to some degree the commander's intent of the law. I tapped into that idea in episode 74, and in this case, we see that this expert didn't need Jesus to explain it to him. He's been able to sum up the law the same way Jesus would to others in later passages. In this case, Jesus simply backs up his answer. Do this and you will live. So why do I have mixed emotions as I read this? It's because of words that surround this interaction. There are words indicating potentially less noble intentions in this man as he comes to Jesus. And there are words indicating a sense of over-reliance on himself to get into God's kingdom. Let's flesh these out a bit. He enters the conversation seeking to test Jesus. This word in the Greek also means to prove, to tempt, or try, to put to trial. In a positive light, it could suggest a litmus test or putting some checks and balances in place to determine the integrity of something, an idea, or a person, for example. In a positive light, it could be seen as good due diligence. But this Greek word doesn't seem to appear as a positive thing in the New Testament. It comes across more as arrogance or pride. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, the word is used as a tool of Satan against Jesus in the wilderness. There, he was tempted or put to the test. And the language of the devil indicated just that. He is directly challenging Jesus' identity and mission. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, Paul warns the church to not test Jesus. In context, to not get caught up in the extreme worldly living of their time, while at the same time claiming to be an intimate follower of Christ. If, for some unlikely reason, this expert had never heard of Jesus until this point, almost three years into his ministry, perhaps he could be excused for such proving. But the context seems to suggest it's more of the latter. I am convinced it's a negative word here. The testing is a little prideful. Backing this up is the way he frames his question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He might be an expert, but he's also only about half right with his thinking here. The idea of inheriting the kingdom is certainly right. This thinking comes with the implied understanding that being a recipient means being an heir. But he also has a belief that becoming an heir and therefore being qualified to inherit this eternal hope is based on what he does to gain it. Tick the boxes to become an heir to a kingdom? How can that ever work? Inheritance comes from the benevolence of another outside of your control. It can only come from sonship. To be a son, you need to be born into things. Or if this doesn't occur, the other option is to simply be chosen. Sadly, he was missing this, and his question suddenly became one of self-reliance instead of clinging to grace. His expertise should have called to remembrance the fact that being chosen was a matter of grace all along. Genesis 15 teaches that the alpha ancestor of the Jews, Abraham, was chosen and made righteous simply on the basis of his belief in what God had said, not by ritual, not by resume, but by faith. Then we have this last part of the passage, the part that tells us the expert wanted to justify himself. And I can understand why roundabout now. I'm a bit of a food guy. I love gourmet food and I love exploring flavors. I love using things like homemade stock, where you take all these amazing flavors from bones and vegetables, and over time you reduce them down to small and incredibly rich portions. If you take a small cube of dried stock and taste a small part of it, 
you'll notice how much flavour is in one of those things and how something so small can season a large meal later on. This expert has correctly realised the magnitude of the law that he is an expert in, and he appears quite overwhelmed by it all. All those laws, all those prohibitions, all those prescribed things, all that history is being condensed to two powerful, flavorful items. Love God and love your neighbor. Get these right and the kingdom is yours. And all this leads to a follow-up question. If I need to love my neighbor, then I need to know the extent of what is expected of me. I love the thinking of two theologians, Walter Leefield and David Payo, who state this, the only way this man or any person can justify himself is to limit the extent of the law's demand and consequently limit his own responsibility. The word justify means to make right, or more specifically in this passage, to be held guiltless. In Romans 3 verse 20, Paul tells us that the law calls us to be conscious of our sin. It points out our guilt, and this expert is feeling this way round about now but he's still appealing to merit to make the guilt go away. He wants to justify himself, to make a way where he can tell himself he's doing just okay, to get to the point where he doesn't feel the guilt of the law, where he can walk in confidence of his inheritance. Now, we will interact with the answer to that question in the next episode, but let's first reflect on what we've just explored. We've just been studying a supposedly wise man's approach to Jesus and seeing intentional testing and self-justification. In the time and setting that Jesus ministered, it might have been somewhat appropriate to use some discernment to work out who he was, given his radical approach to a religious ideal that had been the standard for 1,500 years. But at some point, those checks and balances shifted from diligence to pride. And this expert, at the late stages of Jesus' ministry, was most certainly in that latter mindset. Over time, when presented with the claims of Jesus, it is possible for our heart to just get harder and harder to his invitation to follow. And we'll find ourselves chasing signs and looking for answers to increasingly complex things, instead of simply letting his track record speak for itself. Friend, are you constantly finding yourself testing Jesus instead of simply surrendering to him? Are you on a journey of genuine seeking? Or are those tests just you moving the goalposts and putting off following because you want to do things your own way, not his? That quest for self-justification can be expressed in both religious and worldly ways. In the world, we can point to any number of things as evidence of merit that we believe Jesus should be okay with. We can point to all sorts of upright things in our lives, good ethics, good morals, honest or honorable choices, things like that. And we can almost write God's verdict for him without concern for what he actually says. We do it religiously too, like the expert in this passage. There's a whole heap of pious acts we can point to which might communicate we're on the right path. And we can point to those things as proof that we are fit for the kingdom of God. But all of these approaches do the erroneous thing the religious expert did. It looks to minimize guilt and minimize responsibility. And it looks to accomplish these things by personal action and merit. It asks, what should I do instead of who do I turn to? It recognizes that God has a standard and that it's likely we fall short of it. But it looks within for the answer instead of where salvation actually comes from. As we saw in Romans 3, the law does reveal our guilt. But the passage continues this way. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Self-justification or what it's usually known as self-righteousness, is actually us sinfully looking to do just enough, using our own scales to weigh things up. But the righteousness we need is found not in personal merit, but offered freely to us through Jesus. When you believe in Him, He credits you with what you've been trying to accomplish to no avail all your life. When He credits you with this righteousness, you then become a son or a daughter of God and inheriting the kingdom becomes your blessed assurance. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to put up a rating and even a comment if your platform allows for it, as this will help others know what to expect. I look forward to catching up next time.